0: Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, José Luis Granado Seja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftists and grassroots forces. With another year behind us, Venezuela Analysis is conducting a special podcast episode where we will once again take stock of the Venezuelan political landscape. There were some pretty major developments this year. And Venezuela is actually currently in the headlines as a result of this territorial dispute with Guyana. But I'd actually like to start elsewhere with what I consider to be the most important development, which is sanctions relief. And today I'm joined by the Venezuela analysis team, Andreina Chavez, Ricardo Vaz, and Sira Pascua Marquina. So, in October, the US Treasury Department issued a six month license allowing production, investment, and sale in the Venezuelan oil, gas, and gold sectors. But of course, This was not an act of humanitarian compassion, just a change in strategy. In their announcement, they made sure to say that they were prepared to amend or revoke authorizations at any time should the Biden administration, and I want to underline this, unilaterally determine that the Venezuelan government has not followed through on agreements. And on December 4th, just a few days prior to the recording of this conversation, U.S. State Department spokesperson Matt Miller said the following, quote, so they have not gone through with their part of the bargain. These are two additional steps that we want to see them take. We want to see them release political prisoners, and we want to see them release wrongfully detained Americans. We are considering the matter and will suspend some of the sanctions relief that we put in place earlier this year if we determine that adequate progress to the commitments they made to us have not been made, end quote. So my question to everyone, how seriously should we take these threats? Does U.S. policy towards Venezuela actually obey other factors? For example, the stability of oil prices? What do you think?
1: yeah let me take that, and first of all, I agree that sanctions relief is indeed the major news or the major development that we saw this year. but you're right I mean you said you said in in, in the premise that this change of strategy was not owed to any kind of humanitarian compassion. It was really a more of a change in strategy given the the circumstances. So on one hand, we are uh, you know six years past the beginning of trump's Maximum pressure campaign, and we remember the the whole Guaido interim govern, government government uh, story. And this was really, uh, you know, all out strategy of trying to strangle the Venezuelan economy and, and trigger regime change. And then, you know, once the Biden administration came into office, there were very uh, public, if anonymous, uh, acknowledgments that this strategy didn't work. So the Biden administration was clearly looking for a new strategy without. Losing sight of their ultimate goal, which is to get rid of, of the polypine revolution. So there are several sectors, several factors in place. Uh, on one hand, uh, the, the global energy markets. You know, there's a conflict in Ukraine. There's the you know the unfolding genocide in in Palestine, which can uh, spread instability across the Middle East. And Biden is running for re-election, and there's nothing scarier than high fuel prices in in that context. So that's clearly something that the U.S. officials have in mind, but it's not just that, it's, um, it also has to do with trying to you know, give a leg up to the Venezuelan opposition, trying to find a way for them to save face and return to the political game. And also, if we look at how not just the sanctions architecture, but also the way these licenses work, they're very much tailor-made to benefit uh, foreign corporations and in particular U.S. corporations. So I think we should take these threats seriously because, you know, the, the US does not is not going to just recognize Maduro and, and leave Venezuela alone, but they respond to, to other to other calculations and at the same time, uh, the most important license, which is the one that allows for uh, sale and investment in the in the oil sector, that expires in in April. Uh, that was the the one temporary license so it's it's very possible that the, the US is then going to reimpose these sanctions as a way to make life more difficult for the government in the run up to to re-election so there are several factors at play and some may become more or less important over time but the, the overall message is that the US is looking after its own interests and it's especially its uh, desire to to get rid of an unfriendly sovereign regime here in Venezuela. And that's what their sanctions policy is going to respond to.
2: Yeah, there's something I want to clarify first, because the U.S. has been saying that there are wrongfully detained Americans in Venezuela. And the U.S. citizens detained in Venezuela are not innocent people that we just happen to have in prison. These are mercenaries, people who try to invade Venezuela, who plan to kill the president, to impose a regime change operation. So there is no such thing as wrongfully detained Americans in Venezuela. And second, I agree with Ricardo that I think we should take seriously the threat of having sanctions relief suspended. Um, This is something that I, I, I don't see happening soon. But for example, if Maduro wins the elections in 2024, I am positive that the United States government is going to impose sanctions again. And you know, hopefully Venezuela's economy will be stronger by then, um, but it will still cause another episode of economic crisis and perhaps another wave of migration. So sometimes I'm not completely sure if the Venezuelan government is making the right decisions or maybe if I'm just too radical, because for instance, I think that Venezuela shouldn't be selling oil to the United States. We, We shouldn't allow Chevron to return to Venezuela You know, why put ourselves in a position where the U.S. can take away these relief measures and impose collective punishment again? So, of course, I understand and I know that selling oil to the U.S. and to Europe is the fastest and probably the easiest way for Venezuela to recover oil production and to increase oil revenue, which translates into economic improvements. And this is especially important for the Maduro government as we enter an electoral year. I also understand that Venezuela has a debt with Chevron, and that is one of the main motivations for Chevron to take Venezuelan oil so they can recover millions in accumulated debt. But still, I think that from Venezuelan's point of view, it is a mistake to do business with the U.S. It is a mistake to make a deal with the devil expecting the best especially now when the United States is funding a genocide in Gaza. So how can we continue doing business and selling oil to a country that could easily reimpose sanctions against Venezuelans, reimpose collective punishment, a country that is currently defending the killing and bombing of children in Gaza? So to me, it doesn't make any sense that we are denouncing U.S. imperialism, and at the same time, doing business with them,
3: I do think that um, it's, we should the, our listeners should uh, understand that these uh, so called sanctions relief, uh, which doesn't mean that they have that the sanctions have been lifted. Of course, it just means that there's been a certain that the OFAC has issued some licenses. Um, but this uh, so called sanctions relief comes after. Uh, the October 17 uh, Barbado Accords between the opposition and the Maduro government. And indeed, as uh, Ricardo was pointing at, actually the sanctions have become a problem for a sector of the opposition in the sense that uh, the government has been able to make it visible that the opposition has been the one, one of the factors promoting the sanctions and, of course, everybody knows about the devastating um, impact of the sanctions. So that's one reason why, uh, why there's this, this situation right now. But as we know, it's a very sit- uh, precarious situation. I just wanted to point to a couple of things. We re- recently published an infographic, which is called uh, Resistance and Dialogue. On Venezuela analysis, which is, uh, actually explains kind of like the, the current situation in relation to the sanctions. And of course, I'm also pointing to our readers uh, to, to read our new book, to, to download our new book, which is online A War Without Bombs, which is on the impact of the US sanctions. There is, of course, a lot to talk about the sanctions and its impact, but uh, they happen in a complex and multifaceted
0: context. Absolutely. And part of that context is why did this easing of sanctions actually come about? And as we know, they came as a result of an agreement that was signed between the Nicolás Maduro's government and the U.S.-backed unitary platform that established certain conditions for the 2024 presidential elections. Now, the U.S. has actually insisted that this deal, the Barbados Accords, as they come to be called, means that the hardline opposition should be able to present whatever candidate it chooses. In this case, it would be the far right figure, Maria Corina Machado. We know she won the opposition primary in a landslide, but we also know she's disqualified from office. And so as a result of U.S. pressure, the government and the main opposition parties agreed to this procedure that would see these candidates who are presently barred be able to file an appeal before the Supreme Court. But in a surprise to no one, uh, we saw that Machado said she would not avail herself of this option So at the same time, we saw that the electoral court ratified the suspension of the primary process, essentially rendering her victory moot and leaving her in a precarious position as to whether or not she's actually going to be able to be on the ballot. Now, Maria Corina Machado isn't exactly popular in Venezuela or even within her political coalition. So what's going to happen? Is she going to be turfed? Will she be replaced? Will the opposition go back to this strategy of violence? Of fascistic actions ahead of the vote. Basically, I'm asking what happens next when it comes to the 2024 election?
3: Well, for, first, perhaps our listeners uh, sh- can, many of them will know who Maria Corina Machado is, but uh, she's an opposition a leader and she is disqualified because she should be disqualified. She promoted the 2017 um Guarimbas, the violent street protest that led to some one hundred and fifty people dying and really uh, we can have it in the city of Caracas and around the country so obviously, somebody who promotes uh, basically fascistic street uh, protest um, I think in any country would be disqualified uh, from from running so um The Venezuelan opposition is very, one of the things that we should understand when we we analyze Venezuela is that the opposition in Venezuela is actually can, has a difficulty uniting, a big difficulty uh, coming together. And the fact that Maria Corina Machado will not be able to uh, run is probably actually really not a problem for a lot of sectors within the opposition. They are actually probably happy to, to not be to not have to have her as a contender. Because, in fact, within the opposition, she would be undeniably the one who would uh, gather most votes. There's no question about that. So the other factors, the other sectors of the opposition are probably happy that she is disqualified. And they probably won't uh, activate too much to, qualif- to re-qualify her. Uh, they will probably have to make some symbolic move to for her to be requalified, but I don't think at the end of the day they'll really work hard for it. So the Supreme Court uh, just uh, ratified uh, the disqualification of Maria Corina, and as you were saying, José Luis, uh, Maria Corina, who always, who's in the, uh, you know, who she has always this drive to uh, make sure that she disregards all the, let's say, political, legal, and democratic apparatus of Venezuela, she said that she would not appeal it. So that's just part of her modus operandi. Uh, There's nothing to be surprised there. What will happen? I mean, uh, of course, we don't have uh, uh, the crystal ball, but I think that Maria Corina will uh, will run We'll actually do a campaign through the end, and that's going to generate contradictions, perhaps at the street level. Uh, but uh, I think that right now the Venezuelan people are not too prone to engage in in street protests. I mean, even the opposition, uh, they are not too, not very uh, committed to that form of uh, of a struggle. So I think that. We are most likely to see in the future, in, in the 2024 presidential elections, uh, several opposition candidates and Maria Corina will not be in the in the ticket. Um, and then we will see what happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, Cyr said, said most of it and it's notoriously dangerous, dangerous to make predictions in Venezuela. But it's very interesting how Maria Corina has become a problem for the opposition. I, I don't think there's... Uh, too much importance on the Supreme Court actually declaring that the, the primaries are are not valid because, I mean, within the opposition circles that are already granted Maria Corina the legitimacy, and especially because she won in, in such a landslide. So now it's a problem because she has said, uh, as, as as you were both just recapping, that she is not going to appeal against her ban. She said she she has nothing to appeal, which is, of course, the most predictable thing that could happen. But at the same time, she has also said uh, more than once that she's not going to step aside for a different candidate. So this puts the the opposition. And here I'm talking about the, let's say, the dialogue team in Barbados and these, these mainstream factors, we, who have the the political parties and are more organized. They are in a bit of a bind because on one hand, they cannot uh, go against Maria Corina because she has this, uh, you know, as limited as it can be, this legitimacy of having won the primaries. But at the same time they want to actually present a serious candidate who can challenge Maduro in the 2024 presidential election. So they need to at least look like they're fighting to to get Maria Corina reinstated while uh, trying, and I don't think they're going to be successful, trying to convince Maria Corina to step aside and actually support actively support a candidate. Because it's very possible that she's going to continue in this hardline, hardline position. And here, I, I agree with Sira, I don't think there's, uh, not, not, not just the mood for street protests, but I don't think there's the strength for street protests after all these years and after all the exhaustion that the opposition has gone through. But I think she's going to try and force her line that she's going to be the candidate and she's not going to step aside. The other opposition factors are going to you know, say, let's be realistic and present their own candidate. And you know this is going to split the field. And then at, at the end, uh, Maria Corina will either lead to abstention or she'll support somebody else. Uh, but you know, I just said it was dangerous to make predictions, and here I am making predictions, but I think it 's going to lead to the eternal issue of the opposition uh, not being able to get a unified strategy, and that ultimately
0: working to the benefit of chavismo so I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the issue that 's been in the headlines all over social media, which is the territorial dispute with Guyana. So we saw this new political front open up as a result we 're seeing this becoming a major issue for Venezuela domestically, but also internationally. Now, putting aside the legal details of Venezuela's legitimate claim, to be honest, it seems like Venezuela mostly stands alone on this issue. China, which is a key ally of Venezuela, has oil interests in these disputed waters. CARICOM, which had good relations with Venezuela, particularly as a result of Petro Caribe, has rallied behind Guyana. So even on social media, you see people who are starting to treat Guyana as a victim of so-called Venezuelan aggression, you know, and we're seeing the repeat of some of the language that the State Department has used, calling it a communist dictatorship and all that. All that to say, it seems like people outside of the country don't really realize Venezuela's claim and that Venezuela has always viewed the Essequibo region as their rightful territory, even on the maps. For the longest time, it said territorio en reclamación, a territory that is in process of being restored. Now, if you could help our listeners understand, where does Venezuela's claim stand from? We've seen the government already take some steps to follow through on the referendum's mandate, this referendum that happened that very recently that declared that they reject the international court, that they defend this claim to the region. So with the government already taking steps on it, is a military conflict for Venezuela and Guyana on the horizon?
2: And yes, this is definitely the the subject that everyone is talking about, and um, it is understandably because there's a lot of saying that there is a a conflict that it is brewing there. So, but like you said, Venezuela has always considered the Esequibo territory as part of the country. So, this isn't something new for Venezuela. It, it isn't something that we just suddenly made up in the in the last few years. Venezuela has considered the Ezequivo to be part of the territory since it gained independence from Spain in the early 1800s. However, in 1899, an arbitration award granted the Ezequibo to the United Kingdom, which was Guyana's former colonizer. So Guyana has had control over the Ezequivo ever since 1899. Uh, nonetheless, Venezuela has always uh, fought against this this ruling because uh, the panel didn't have any Venezuelan negotiators, so Venezuelan interests weren't being represented during this during these times. So eventually, in 1966, Venezuela managed to to finally uh, revive this subject about this equivo, and that is when both parties, Guyana and the United Kingdom and Venezuela, signed the Geneva Agreement, which is an agreement that basically it says that Guyana and Venezuela have to find a negotiated solution to the Esequibo territorial dispute, and they have to find this solution talking as two independent states without the information of the United Kingdom or any other formal colonizer. The problem is that nothing happened. I mean, the agreement was there, but there were no no talks, no discussion, no no further agreements. So the dispute sort of like it became something that both countries began to ignore. And although the legal battle was still there, but nothing nothing was happening. Of course, uh, there were several points in history when Venezuela uh, tried to revive this legal battle. Uh, but like I said, uh, there was really no conflict. And um, the problem is that once we, we find out that ExxonMobil and Guyana found oil in 2015 in the Esequibo waters, then that's when the conflict becomes really important. Because now we are talking about a massive amount of, uh, of resources in the Esequibo that Guyana is planning to exploit with ExxonMobil, which is a, a corporation that, as we know, it is responsible for environmental crimes in Latin America and around the world. So, yes, since then, since 2015, it is really when the conflict began to grow. And because Guyana, of course, uh, saw its own economic interest being threatened, it went to the International Court of Justice in 2018 to try to uh, to have the, the ICJ to uphold the ruling of 1899. Ha- Venezuela, however, doesn't recognize the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, so the case is being is being reviewed by the court, but Caracas hasn't really accepted that the court has the jurisdiction to review the case. Um, well, ever since, ever since the... Since this process in the ICJ began, uh, we've seen like this battle of wars between Venezuela and Guyana. And we've seen the conflict sort of like arise in these last few months. And I personally don't see a military conflict happening because I think neither country is going to win. Uh, they, They will both come out with even weaker economies and they will both become vulnerable to foreign intervention, and I think both the Venezuelan and the Guyana governments know this. So, so far, what I see is a lot of senseless bravado but from both nations, while both nations, both governments are ignoring the needs and the feelings of the people who are actually living in the Essequibo. So nobody has asked them what they want. Nobody has asked the Essequibo people if they want to be part of Venezuela, if they want to be part of Guyana, or if they want to be independent. So now about Guyana being perceived as the victim of Venezuelan aggression, I don't truly agree with this because Venezuela has never threatened with the use of military force. It has never said they are going to invade the or anything like that. Uh, Guyana, on the other hand, has invited foreign armies to defend the Esequibo, including the U.S. Southern Command. So, And that is extremely dangerous and mostly stupid, thing to do when you take into consideration how the U.S. has uh, destroyed countries along the world with their armies. So that said, I, I do understand why Guyana will feel threatened, given Venezuela is a bigger country. And I also understand that from Guyana's point of view, they will be losing some, I don't know, 60% of their territory. And of course, personally, that doesn't sit well with me. So this also explains why countries like Brazil and even Cuba are supporting Guyana, which additionally is a nation that it is still trying to overcome poverty and inequalities left by centuries of colonization. So yeah, I think that explains why these countries are are supporting Guyana uh, primarily. Although I do think that most of these nations uh, agree that the best solution is simply to talk and to find a and negotiated a solution to, to the disputed territory. About the measures that President Maduro announced that were perceived as something aggressive as well, uh, let me name some of them. So President Maduro said that he was going to propose a law to create a new Venezuelan state called Guayana esequiba And Venezuela is going to offer the people in the esequibo uh, Venezuelan identity cards and social programs. Uh, Maduro also ordered the Venezuelan oil company Pedevesa to begin granting licenses for oil exploration in the Esequibo. Something we can only assume is something that could happen in the future if Venezuela wins the legal battle and recovers the Esequibo. Because at the moment none of these measures really matter because Venezuela is not in a position to enter the Esequibo territory because it does not control the that land and Venezuela is also not in the interest of sparking a military confrontation. So I believe these measures announced by Maduro are mainly to reassure the Venezuelan people that he is doing everything in his power to recover the Esequibo, that Venezuela is ready to welcome the Esequibo population, and also to prove that the government has plans, has future plans for the territory and its resources. That could be continued by future presidents of Venezuela who inherit the legal battle. And to be honest, given the criminal history of U.S. corporations in Latin America, ideally I would prefer if Guyana and Venezuela unite against ExxonMobil, unite against Chevron, against the United States, and that they will find a way to use the resources in the Essequibo to improve living conditions for the people in the Essequibo. And for the people of both nations. I mean, ultimately, the real enemy here will always be the United States, will always be the corporations that are trying to exploit our territories.
1: Yeah, just to add something quick, Andrina already gave a great, a great summary. I would recommend people go to our website because we also published an infographic on, on the Esequibo dispute, really trying to trace these basically 200 years of uh, dispute and the, the most important flashpoints along the way. And I think this final point is where I wanted to to jump in. There's been a lot of, uh, there's been a war of words and a lot of bravado from both sides. There's a heightening of tensions across the border, which again, I agree with Andreina, and I really hope I'm not wrong about this. I don't think there's going to be a military conflict. Uh, It would really contradict Venezuela's uh, international position over the years. I mean, Venezuela has even to a fault. Uh, always harped on this court of of uh, international law and all that. So Venezuela really is insisting uh, on a return to to direct talks, and of course, it's it's trying to leverage it, its its position as best as possible. Even with some uh, we could call premature announcement. Uh, that being said, the issue of of oil is is really where uh, it all comes down to. And one thing that I I kind of wished was more in the discourse is this idea that Andreina was was making of that the, 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 can, the two countries and the entire region, the Caribbean region, should identify this common enemy of, of U.S. imperialism. And there, is, there are precedents. I mean, Petro Caribe was a precedent that saw how uh, natural resources in the region could be used for the, you know, the development, the kind of uh, autonomous, independent development of these small Caribbean nations on favorable conditions, you know, without the impositions of, of U.S. imperialism or, or corporate interests. And in the case of Guyana, the same thing. I mean, uh, we just stumbled upon an an expose by The Intercept, which said something like, uh, it's not clear where ExxonMobil ends and where the Guyanese government begins. So it really is an outsized influence of this corporation. And here there are alternatives, there are precedents. There's uh, the blueprint of how Venezuela dealt with uh, oil corporations during the Chavez years, you know, imposing... Sovereignty imposing much more favorable conditions for the state and that in turn translating to, you know, social programs and all of that. So I think that's a part that has been missing in this kind of escalating issue with the looming shadow of, of uh, you know, U.S. imperialist intervention. There were some suggestions by Lula da Silva yesterday of setting up some mediation. I think that will, will be useful and I'll also bring in a kind of regional perspective to de-escalate tensions and hopefully, you know, put this issue of of the, you know, the region uniting as opposed to letting foreign powers, you know, uh, sow division.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree, especially in the sense that there's almost an inclination of some people, some observers to treat this as if it's some kind of schoolyard disagreement with one country bullying another. We need to look at the class dynamics at play. Well, who are the actors involved in this? What role does ExxonMobil play? What is U.S. capital doing? What is U.S. imperialism doing here? Uh, And not get too confused and also appreciate that, uh, you know, there's been this historical effort to portray Venezuela in a negative light in the the international community. And by that, I mean, with this effort to take them to the International Criminal Court, now we're, we're seeing this language of them trying to be a bully or being aggressive and all of that. And then actually brings me to my final question, which is about a conversation I would like to have about what's still happening in Venezuela. There is still a very radical political process happening, maybe under the radar, but it's there. And so I want to talk about the continued efforts to build popular power in Venezuela. It's a topic that too often gets marginalized. On the 11th anniversary of former President Hugo Chavez's final major public speech, the strike at the helm, El Golpe de Timon, something that we've covered uh, frequently on this podcast, President Maduro held a meeting in Caracas with popular movements. And as a result of that gathering, the president handed over some state assets, he promised money to support the communal economic circuits, and said that the government would prioritize the purchases of communal production. But as we saw in the coverage on our website, these grassroots organizations have voiced concerns that amidst this U.S. blockade, the Maduro administration has actually increasingly favored private sector, the interests of private capital, This, in addition to many other measures that have not been favorable towards these popular movements, towards the grassroots. The Communon Union, which for those of you who don't know, it's an alliance that brings together more than 60 communes from 15 different states, put out a very strong communique with very specific proposals to boost social production that included many long-standing demands that they say have gone under under addressed for years. So it would seem that there's a bit of a gap between the president's rhetoric and the situation on the ground in Venezuela. Where do things stand when it comes to the efforts of grassroots organizations to build popular power in Venezuela? Does the sanctions relief open a path to the construction of a communal state, as Chavez demanded in the golpe de timón, and the strike at the helm, before his passing?
3: So this is actually uh, perhaps the, one of our main focuses at, at Venezuela analysis, right? So we really... Uh, try to understand that we are committed to the grassroots and communal organization in Venezuela. So, indeed, in this meeting that you were mentioning, Jose Luis, in this mass meeting in which uh, uh, Maduro met with some 15,000 people, common art, um, there was a kind of um, an interesting situation because uh, there was some talk about promoting the economic, uh, the communal economic circuits, which is good. But that's actually already happening. The communal economic circuits are um, spaces between communes where communes exchange their production and they have a little bit of support from the governments through the Ministry of Communes. That's a very good initiative. It's a small-scale initiative, um, but it's a good one. So kind of like Maduro talked about this initiative, but he also talked about other purchases. And it was clear, and we know, that most of the purchases that are being uh, done by the Venezuelan government are precisely not done to communes, and the communes, well uh, many of the communes there, including the bloc of the communard union, kind of like expressed their dissent to these uh, to the way that things were being handled. indeed, uh, the Communard union made a, a very clear, released a very clear uh, statement, like something like two days before. Uh, proposing that there should be actual support for, for the promotion of, of communal organization. Now, I think that this, is, this conversation is more interesting when we take it beyond this specific uh, situation. Of course, Chavez reminded us once and again that we live in a capitalist society and that our state is bourgeois. But at the same time, there's the emergence of a new... Uh, form of producing and distributing wealth through the communes. Uh, And the two are necessarily in contradiction. So how do you do it? You have a bourgeois state, you have a government that that sometimes looks favorably on the communes and sometimes ignores the communes. And you have, of course, a number of communes, uh, perhaps 100 or 200 communes that are really working very hard to build uh, new social relationships in in the territory. So uh, how do you deal with this dialectic of building building the new in a capitalist society when the state, be it all uh, in a situation, in a very economically problematic situation due to the U.S. blockade, uh, but when the state is actually the hover of most of the resources, in Venezuela, And what I mean by this is that the Venezuelan bourgeoisie in the past and in the present is highly dependent on the state. So what do communes do? Um, what are communes to do in this situation? And communes indeed have to struggle for for resource, but they also have to struggle, struggle simultaneously for autonomy. So that's kind of like the dialectic of a revolution. There's something new emerging and there's the old forms are still there. There's tremendous contradictions and there's a a dispute that there's there's actually uh, tensions going back and forth, the communes demanding more and the state perhaps giving a little bit more and then retreating back and so forth. So what we've been seeing in this last year is a little bit of this, the communes kind of like demanding uh, what is rightly theirs and the resources that they actually need. To be able to not only survive, but to become a real reference. Uh, and the state sometimes granting uh, some resources. And in this case, through an actual, in the case of the, of the mass meeting with Nicolas Maduro, we actually see that uh, when the communes demand something, there can be a response from the government, in this case from Nicolas Maduro. But since uh, that event happened, until now, we haven't seen any kind of like concrete uh, steps towards uh, transferring the resources that the communes need so that they can really produce uh, on scale. And of course, the objective is not to compete with the capitalist system, but to actually make it it visible that the communes can actually produce and the communes will be producing not for capital, but for the people.
1: Yes, you already pretty much said it all. Uh, Again, just to plug in content. Uh, people should look at our series of communal and working class resistance. This is a series of uh, interviews by Sierra and sometimes uh, with Chris Gilbert too, to you know document, understand, you know really ask the the difficult questions about how communes are surviving in these very difficult circumstances. Uh, Jose Luis, you were mentioning sanctions relief in your question when you were bringing up the the topic and and how that can affect popular power. I think we have to first look in the opposite direction, you know, how sanctions really were a very hard blow for popular organizations, you know, for all the economic destruction that they brought, you know, even driving migration, making it even harder for comments to have any kind of uh, autonomous productive uh, apparatus. So now there is sanctions relief. Uh, and there's a big question, you know, how are the new resources going to be distributed because in, in recent years uh amidst these very complicated circumstances, what we've seen from the government has been a liberal and even very pragmatic way of operating. You know, sometimes just taking the the most obvious solution, which is in the most case, kind of orthodox uh economic measures that we're used to in, in, in other parts of the world, and not looking at the potential that exists here with popular power. And there have been plenty of demonstrations over the years that we have uh, talked about and and documented. And so that's why it's very interesting that communes actually, uh, stand up and, and, and make themselves heard even in, in these, you know, very limited scenarios that we see in these televised broadcasts to, to show that they are here and they have this capacity to produce. But at the same time, uh, again, going back to something Chavez once said, you know, we cannot convert everything we produce into merchandise. We cannot build socialism. With the damaged tools of capitalism, just like uh, what, what was it just like turtles don't climb trees and and armadillos don't don't shave you know Chavez also had always had a way with words but that that goes to say that you know just in the same way as the bourgeoisie is very as then has always been very dependent on state support uh, it's important to to fight for this and to not just assume that communes can you know get into the capitalist market and and fight I mean they are in, in uh, a disadvantage compared to this large corporation and this historical monopolies. And so they have to fight while maintaining their their autonomy to really push forward these new social relations and and, and their own production amidst, uh, again, very difficult circumstances.
0: Well, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody for participating. I always think that this is a good opportunity for our listeners and readers to get to know us a little bit, to, to understand the viewpoints of the people here on the Venezuela Analysis team who are able to share their incredible insights with everybody here on the program. I want to remind everybody that we're in the midst of our fundraiser. We're actually celebrating our 20th anniversary. It's kind of hard to believe. Venezuela Analysis has been around for two decades now. So we're asking for your support to continue our work. Your donation to Venezuela Analysis will help us maintain our production and actually scale up our work. Be sure to check out our website for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. I think we can confidently say that much of the topics that we talked about today, popular power, the essequivo, the upcoming elections, sanctions relief, these are going to be the major issues that we're going to see in the next year in 2024. And I think it's important for us to be able to keep up with what's happening so that we're able to have an appreciation of what's actually happening in Venezuela. And so you can always count on Venezuela analysis for that on the ground coverage. And remember, we're everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram, and of course, Twitter. I want to remind everybody that if you enjoyed the program, please check out our older episodes. We have quite a long series, over 20 episodes now, covering various topics, including many of the ones we touched on today. And if you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends. Again, visit venezuelanalysis.com. And if you're able to, please donate to help support our work. Thanks so much.